Well, we uh, traditionally call this day Good Friday, which is kind of an unusual name for this day, because when you think about the crucifixion of Christ, you don't think of anything that on the surface sounds good at all about this day. But of course, even though the crucifixion of Christ is the most evil act of all human history, we still call it Good Friday because of the results of his death and crucifixion. We want to look at uh, the death of Christ tonight. Uh, Did he die on the cross? And what did he accomplish when he did die on the cross? The reason why this is an important question is because not everyone believes that Jesus actually died on the cross. Uh, For example, in the Koran, it teaches that uh, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but instead there was a look-alike, someone that looked like Jesus, that actually was his substitute, and that person died, not Jesus. Uh, that's because in their teaching they say that um, he didn't die on the cross, but it was only made to appear so, quoting from the Koran. Now other Muslims would interpret that as that Jesus did actually, he was crucified on the cross, but he didn't actually die on the cross. He survived it. So other Muslims would hold to a a view called the swoon theory, where Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, he just swooned. And he uh, was put in the grave thinking that he was dead, but he actually revived inside the tomb and was able to come out and appear to various people. So, uh, let me see if I can get this, my presenter up. Uh, I've lost it on my tab. I can just follow it up here, I think. Uh, But um, there are several resources I want to uh, refer to in uh, uh, where I got some of my information uh, from for tonight. And one of them is a book on the left written by Frank Morrison who wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? He wrote this back in 1930. He was a uh, a skeptic as a young man. He didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you, sir. And um, whenever he went to church and they recited the Apostles' Creed, he he would recite it up to the point where they said, and he arose from the dead, and he wouldn't recite that because in his own heart and mind, he didn't believe it to be true. As a young man, he had bought into some of the higher criticism of the German critics. He agreed with uh, Julius Huxley, who denied that miracles could really happen. So he was a skeptic and started to write a book to basically show that the resurrection of Christ was a myth. As he began to research the book and look at all the sources available to him, Bible, Scripture, and outside the Bible, as he began to weigh the evidence, he gradually became convinced that in fact, Christ did die and He was resurrected on the cross as He predicted. The book on the right is more of a contemporary book written by a more modern author, uh, Lee Strobel who wrote the book, The Case for Christ. There's been over 5 million copies of this book sold. He also was a uh, skeptic. He was actually an atheist. He didn't even believe in God. 
He didn't believe that Christ was even a real person. He just thought he was a figment of historians' imagination, a character invented many centuries later after the first century. He uh, had a degree in journalism. He also had a degree in law. But then his wife became a Christian. And her changes and her faith was such a curiosity to him, he decided that he would investigate the claims of Christ's death and resurrection. And he too, after studying the evidence, was converted to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Both men became convinced Though they started out as atheists or skeptics, they became convinced having studied the evidence with an open mind and they came away absolutely uh, convinced that what the Bible says about Jesus Christ is absolutely true. So tonight we want to look at uh, several, again, two main points. Did Jesus die on the cross? A lot of people deny that. And if He did, which He did... What did he accomplish? Why did he die on the cross? Now in some of the books, uh, one of the books, uh, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, some of the information that I'm uh, drawing from is from that book and it comes from a Dr. Alexander Metherell who's a PhD. He was also kind of an expert researcher in death by crucifixion. So he has an expertise in that area. He has a medical degree, a doctorate in engineering. He's edited five scientific books. Uh, he wrote a very lengthy, uh, great article in a uh, medical scientific journal on the muscular contraction that takes place. So he's one of the resources that's uh, quoted that I'll be drawing from. Also, other information from the Journal of American Medical Association I wrote an article back in 1986 on the physical death of Jesus Christ. And some of the information I'll be sharing with you comes from that tonight as well. I do want to warn the parents as before I go any further that I do have some uh, pictures that most of them are just drawings of uh, some of the events around the crucifixion of our Lord. So they're a little bit graphic. So you should use discernment and your younger children viewing some of this. And uh, you can kind of evaluate it as we go, but I just want to give you a heads up on that. So the first question we want to look at is, did Jesus actually die on the cross? Uh, again, a lot of the uh, theories today that deny that would uh, adopt uh, the swoon theory, something like that. And so what we want to do is to examine some of the evidence, did Jesus actually die? And I want us to, to begin by looking at the Garden of Gethsemane. Now this, this is where Jesus went Thursday night, late Thursday night. They probably got in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, which is right east of the Temple Mount. So you can kind of see the map. And it was around 11 o'clock probably in the evening when they got there. And uh, we're told that uh, he was there, Christ went off by himself to pray several times, his disciples were falling asleep. And you can see some of the pictures of modern day Garden of Gethsemane is full of olive trees, Mount of Olives where it's located at, beautiful scenery, very peaceful, very scenic. So this is where uh, they would go late in the evenings on a lot of the nights they were near Jerusalem. 
But we read a couple of verses that are quite amazing. Uh, Mark tells us where Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is late Thursday night into early, early Friday morning. He says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And then in Luke 22, verse 44, Luke, who was a, a doctor, a physician, says that Christ being in agony, He was praying very fervently and His sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Many people have wondered about this. Really? He's sweating blood? Is that even possible? And in fact, it is. It's actually a medical condition called hematidosis. It's not very common, but it's well documented. It's associated with a high degree of psychological stress where severe anxiety uh, produces chemicals in the capillaries, the tiny little capillaries of the sweat glands, causing them to leak a small amount of blood in the, the sweating so that when someone sweats, it comes out looking like it's tinged with blood, like it has a reddish color on it. Uh, we're told, in, for example, in one of the uh, journals that I looked at uh, called ACTA, which is a scientific medical type journal, it says that hematidrosis is an eccrine sweat disorder characterized by one or more episodes of spontaneous bloody sweating from non-traumatized skin. In other words, the skin has not been injured. That's not what's causing the bleeding. But it's the internal stress and anxiety going on inside the person that causes them to sweat and that sweat being tinged with blood. Now at this point, Jesus is a matter of hours away from His crucifixion. He knows what lies ahead of Him. From the very beginning of His ministry, from the beginning of His, of his life, He knew what He was going to do. His mission was to be crucified, be lifted up, as He said on a number of occasions, that He might save His people from their sins. And yet, the horror, the mere reflection upon what awaited him in a matter of hours ahead created such an an inner earthquake, an earthquake of such a magnitude that buildings would collapse and rubble would, would fall to the ground. An inner earthquake that so distressed our Lord's human nature. He was fully God and fully man, but His human nature was so shaken by this that it caused his sweat to be tinged uh, with blood. The Lord was anticipating not only the agony of the crucifixion, the bodily pain, the torture that he was about to go through from the Romans, but also the outpouring of the wrath of God upon him as he would pay the penalty for our sins in full. And contemplating that suffering moved him to the point where he said again, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Well, the other effect of this hematidrosis was that it would cause the the skin to become extremely fragile and sensitive 
And this really kind of adds to the pain of what our Lord will experience next. We see that uh, once Judas led the mob to come and arrest the Lord in the middle of the night, they took him back into Jerusalem. They first took him uh, to the house of the high priest Annas and Caiaphas. They may have lived in a dual compound together. And that's where his mock kangaroo trial began. Uh, After that trial kind of reached its zenith and they never could convict the Lord, but he finally had to give them the ammunition to convict him by admitting that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Then they rushed him over to Pilate. This would be very, very early in the morning uh, before sunup. And uh, they carried on the trial before the governor, Pilate. The reason why they had to do that is because they wanted Christ to be put to death. The Romans did not allow the Jews that authority. So they had to get permission. They had to get basically a a verdict from Pilate so that Jesus could be put to death. At this point, Pilate uh, doesn't agree with them. He argues on a number of occasions that he sees no guilt worthy of death of Jesus, but they manipulate him. He's a weak man. The Jewish leaders, the chief priests, the the mob there manipulate uh, Pilate and tell him that if he lets him go, since Jesus claimed to be a king, then he's no friend of Caesar. So they tighten the screw down on him and he finally gave in for Jesus to to be crucified. Before they crucified him, the first thing they would do, of course, would be to flog their victims. This, uh, this happened most of the time. And again, uh, we read this uh, in the Gospel accounts uh, that they uh, flogged our Lord. Uh, this was a brutal form of torture. Uh, the Romans who did the flogging were not limited to the Jewish 39 lashes, so they could continue it as long as they wanted. And usually they tried to bring the, the, the person to the point close near the point of death without actually killing them, although some died just from the flogging itself. You can see there's a whip with a wooden handle, braided leather thongs with metal balls and slivers of sharp bone woven into them. And when the soldier would uh, begin to uh, hit the victim, The metal balls, of course, would cause deep bruising and contusions. They would break open eventually with the ongoing pounding. The piercing of the sharp pieces of bone would cut and slice the flesh severely like little razor blades. And this would happen to the point where the back would be so shredded that in some cases the cuts would be so deep they would even expose the spine and the bones. The stripes would be delivered from the shoulders all the way down the back, the buttocks, and the upper legs. And they just repeatedly over and over and over again would uh, lay these stripes upon the individual. One physician who studied the Roman floggings would cause, said that uh, it would cause the quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. A third century historian Eusebius described flogging that the muscles and sinews and bowels were open to exposure. 
It was brutal. And again, many would die of such a beating even before they were crucified just because of the severity of the abuse. What would inevitably take place is what uh, medical authorities describe as hypovolemic shock. Hypovolemic is a word that means a low volume of blood. They would usually lose so much blood that their body would strain with trying to circulate enough blood even though there was not that much of it. Several effects from this hypovolemic shock would occur to the person being flogged. Their heart would begin to race trying to pump the blood that isn't there. With less blood, the heart's got to work harder to pump the blood that is remaining. The blood pressure would would drop causing fainting and collapse. And of course, we know that Jesus later, as He's having to carry part of His cross, will collapse on the way to, to Calvary. The person will also become extremely dehydrated and thirsty as the body craves fluids to replace the lost volume of blood. And of course, on the cross, Jesus will cry out, I thirst. Uh, Jesus is in a very critical condition even before the nails are driven through His hands and feet. And then, of course, after they flogged Him, they brought Him back in to Pilate. The soldiers mocked Him. They dressed Him up like He's a king. They put a crown of thorns upon His head. This is uh, one of the bushes or the thorn trees there in Israel that they would have woven together a crown. Can you imagine that being rested on the top of your head, your scalp, and then just crushed down about six inches or whatever on your, on your head? The penetration, the bleeding, the pain. Here's another picture of it. So they would do that just in mockery that he claimed to be the king. And so they wanted him to wear a crown. And it really shows that our Lord suffered from the top of His head to the bottom of His feet. He suffered. And He endured pain to pay the penalty for our sins. After the flogging, of course, the next step would be the crucifixion. Now, we execute our criminals so humanely today. We do everything we can to prevent them from feeling uh, as, as little pain as possible. And then death, death comes very quickly to them. But not so with the Romans. The Romans delighted in inflicting pain. They had cruel joy in making you suffer. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians or the Carthaginians around the 6th century B.C. It was not abolished to about the 4th century B.C. under Emperor Constantine after he converted to Christianity. Then he abolished it. But crucifixion was used for slaves. It was used for criminals. It was used for enemies of the government. Not for Roman citizens. It was too horrible. It was too abhorrent. Too painful. Uh, too shameful to be used for Roman citizen. So other people got crucified. It was considered the most shameful and disgraceful way to die. Sometimes they would hang on the cross for days, depending upon how badly they had been flogged. 
uh, whether they've been flogged at all, whether they tied their arms and their feet to the cross as opposed to nailing their, their arms and their feet to the cross. But they could hang there for days. Once they died, the Romans would normally leave their body on the cross naked for vultures and other birds to come to consume. The Romans didn't just want to kill their victims. They wanted to mutilate their bodies and dishonor their bodies. That's what crucifixion was all about. The crucifixion itself was carried out by a centurion and four Roman soldiers. The criminal would normally carry the crossbar of the cross called the patibulum, and he would carry it out to the place of crucifixion. The vertical post would be permanently uh, secured in the ground at that location. So the victim had to carry the crossbar, and normally that weighed from 75 to 125 pounds. You can see now why our Lord, having been flogged, stumbled and fell trying to carry his own crossbar to the place of crucifixion. You can see there's different shapes for the cross. We don't exactly we don't know exactly the shape of the cross our Lord was uh, was crucified on. Either one of those two would be the most likely candidates. But once he got there, the victim would be thrown down to the ground on his back. His arms would be stretched out. Now remember his back had just been flogged, bleeding, shredded. It'd be thrown on the ground on his back. His arms stretched out across a horizontal beam of the crossbar. And uh, at that point, they would begin to pound in the nails. The nails were uh, tapered iron spikes normally about five to seven inches long. They had a square shaft on them. And they would be driven through the wrist and not the hands. This is how most people think our Lord was crucified. I say most. Some versions of it. But authorities say this would not have been uh, where they would have placed the nail, primarily because that nail could too easily uh, rip out of the flesh in the hand and the victim could actually fall from the cross. So to make sure that that didn't happen, they would put the nail through the wrist, through the two, two bones of the forearm. At this point, uh, you can only imagine the pain that this would cause. The uh, nail will go right uh, through the median nerve. And by the way, the, in the Greek language, the word hand can include the forearm as well. So it's totally accurate. Uh, the median nerve running right down the middle of the forearm would be crushed or certainly torn apart. The pain would that would be caused would, would be to send sharp throbbing, searing, stinging pain throughout the hand and arms. Like someone squeezing or twisting a nerve with a pair of pliers. Uh, one described the pain that would result from the pounding in of the nails as being absolutely unbearable. It would actually cause the hand to, to draw up like a claw because of the nerves and the effect of the, of the uh, shaft running through the wrist. The pain was so great that they actually had to invent a new word to describe it. Excruciate excruciating pain. 
Literally, it means out of the cross. It means to torment someone physically or mentally with severe pain. It's from the cross. It's from the crucifixion to describe the worst kind of pain, excruciating pain. At this point, the victim would be hoisted to the top of the vertical stake and attached to that stake. Uh, Oftentimes in doing this, they would dislocate his shoulders. The mere fact that his arms are now nailed to the crossbar and they're lifting up that crossbar and the weight of his body hanging down as they lift it up to put it on top of the vertical post or attach it to the vertical post. His body weight is hanging down. Most think that their shoulders would be probably dislocated at this point. In Psalm 22, one of the prophetic psalms of our Lord's crucifixion, He cries out, My bones are out of joint. And that would probably be the effect here. At this point, the feet would be attached to the cross. And oftentimes you see pictures of the feet are overlapped in front. And one uh, stake or spike is hammered through uh, both feet at the same time. Again, nerves and tendons and muscle tissues would be set on fire. They would be shattered and ripped by the stake piercing their way through them, um, through the flesh and into the wood. The position of the feet could vary. Uh, It could either be like this, or you could have the feet nailed separately on both sides of the cross. And then the the stakes would go in sideways. Some people mocked that this was all made up, that there was no nailing of a victim to the cross. There were people who doubted that. Then in 1968, archaeologists in Jerusalem found the remains of about three dozen Jews who had died during the Jewish revolt against Rome in 70 A.D., about 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion. One of the victims' remains was found in a stone box called an ossuary. This is uh, the ossuary. You can see the front of the stone box. Normally after the body decayed, they would gather up the bones and they would stick them in a stone box to preserve them. And inside this one, they found the, the remains of the skeleton, some of the bones of a man whose name was actually printed on the front of the ossuary. And his name was... Jehohanan. Jehohanan. But if you notice, this is his heel bone. And there is still the the iron stake that has been penetrated through his heel bone. From this particular uh, type of crucifixion, we find that the uh, stake would have gone directly through the heel bone And his feet would have been attached to something like this on both sides. Now, we don't know whether our Lord was crucified this way or in the more traditional way. But this was something that uh, he had to endure as his feet were nailed to the cross. Most people say that the victims on the cross would eventually die from asphyxiation. The weight of the body would pull down, obviously, When your body is being pulled down, it has a tendency to inflate your chest, which would inflate your lungs. 
In order to breathe, you have to exhale. In order to exhale, you have to pull on your arms. You have to push with your feet. Lift yourself up enough to be able to exhale. And then as you relax, your body would sag down again. Your chest would inflate. Your lungs would inflate. And over and over and over again, they had to lift their body weight by pulling on those nails driven in their wrists, pushing down on those feet with nails driven into them, into the wood, so they could lift their body weight up enough to to exhale. And doing this over and over and over again would eventually completely exhaust the victim. And by this time, his heart would be beating erratically due to the buildup of carbon dioxide in his blood, and he would soon suffocate himself to death. What's interesting with our Lord in the Gospel accounts, we read that He didn't actually die from uh, being so exhausted that he He just died. He actually willed Himself to die. In the last few minutes of His life, Christ wetted his mouth with some of the vinegar and he cried out, it is finished. And then, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then it says he breathed his last. And in Mark's rendition of chapter 15, verse 39, it says, when the centurion who is standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. In other words, Jesus willed Himself to die. He willed Himself to breathe His last breath and give His life away. His life in the bottom, or in the the final analysis of it, wasn't taken from Him. He gave it that He might accomplish God's will for him on the on the cross truly this man was the son of god so he died this was late in the afternoon now we're on friday of course he was crucified around 9 a.m friday morning now we're around three o'clock friday afternoon when the lord actually dies because the sabbath starts at that sundown we're in the passover period we're in the feast of unleavened bread There's a Sabbath starting at sundown. The Jewish authorities didn't want those bodies on the cross during the Sabbath. So they went to Pilate and they requested that he have his soldiers break their legs to further uh, their asphyxiation and suffocation. Obviously, if if their legs are broken, they're not going to be able to push up with those broken legs. uh, And eventually, it it will rush them into a state of of suffocation. When they came to the Lord Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. Now, before let me say before he he died or right after he died, uh, we find that uh, and it was before the the Roman soldier used his spear and penetrated up into the chest cavity of our Lord. That because of all that he was suffering, because of the 
the shock that he was going through, the hypovolemic shock, that there, the medical scientists say that there would be fluids that would build up around the lungs and fluids around the heart. And this would be a clear fluid that would build up because of the state of shock that he's in. When the Roman soldier finally came to Jesus and he saw that he was already dead, so he didn't break his legs in fulfillment of prophecy, he nevertheless took his spear and he rammed it up into the chest cavity of our Lord. And when he pulled that out, out came blood and water. And most uh, understand that that spear probably went up from his right side through his lung into his heart. When he pulled the, the spear out, first came that built up collection of fluids. That was the water that came out. And then the blood because they probably penetrated the heart. So the Blood in the heart, a larger volume of blood came out. Now John, in his Gospel, says that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. The water came out first, actually, and then the blood. But why does John put it as blood first and then water? Well, in the Greek syntax, sometimes the word order can indicate the order or sequence of events. But sometimes the word order indicates prominence or importance and in this sense because John there at the cross remember as an eyewitness saw this he saw the water he saw the blood but there was a lot more blood that came out because the heart had been penetrated and that was a more prominent thing so that's why he wrote blood and water very consistent with with uh, the way they they wrote back in that day there was no doubt that Jesus was dead. The Roman soldiers were trained experts in killing. If someone would survive a crucifixion, the soldiers would be executed. If they failed in their duty to put them to death, they would be executed. So they were experts. They could tell a dead body when they saw one. And then when they looked upon Jesus, they said they knew that He was dead. That's why they didn't break His bones. From the Journal of American Medical Association from that article, it says, clearly the weight of the historical and, and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to His side was inflicted. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. So Jesus died. There's no way you can get around it. He was dead. By all the, the expert testimony of the guards who were there, by the evidence of the water and the blood that came out, by the evidence of the crucifixion, all that He had to go through, uh, He was dead. Uh, all, everyone who, who looks at the evidence should draw that conclusion unless they're so totally biased in the other direction that they refuse to acknowledge it. So we answer the question, did Jesus die? Yes, He died. The next question is, why did He die? Well, and of course, the Scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death. He had to die because that's what sin required. That was the payment for sin. That was the penalty brought for sin. That was death. 
the wages, the penalty, the curse, punishment for sin is death. So he had to die. Why? Because he died as our substitute, bearing our sin and the punishment due our sin. We're told in Hebrews 9 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You cannot be saved unless you have a sacrifice who dies in your place, who sheds his blood and dies in payment for your sin. And there's only one who could do that, and that's Jesus Christ. We're told in Isaiah again that Christ suffered the wrath of God for us. Not only did He suffer the crucifixion, the Romans, the physical bodily pain, the emotional torment of all of that on His body and soul, but God the Father poured out His wrath upon Him to make Him suffer the punishment that we deserve in hell for our sins forever and ever. Isaiah writes, prophetically of Christ on the cross. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In other words, God smote Him. God struck Him. God afflicted Him. Not just with the pain from the crucifixion, but tormented his body and his soul equivalent to what would, would, would be endured in hell forever, God poured out His wrath on Christ as well as the pain of the crucifixion. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. For the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. So what did He accomplish? Why did He die? To save His people from their sins. So that when Jesus said it is finished and released His Spirit back to the Father, there erupted a mighty gusher of blessings. Have you ever seen one of the old oil wells being drilled and it's a gusher and it just the, the oil just comes out with such great power it just blows the the head off the well and it's just big old stream of uh, oil going right up into the when Christ died there was a gusher of divine salvific blessings that are so high and wide it would blanket the globe to whoever repents and believes in Jesus Christ can find the blessing of forgiveness and salvation when they turn to Jesus Christ. Such a mighty gusher that was high enough and wide enough to cover sinners around the globe. And in wrapping this up in terms of what he accomplished, I love Rembrandt's famous drawing of the crucifixion of Christ. Because I think Rembrandt in his own realization, his own theology, understood the reason why Jesus had to be crucified. And he did a self-portrait of himself at the bottom being involved in crucifying the Lord Jesus because ultimately he knew that it was his sin that put Jesus on the cross. 
It is my sin. It is your sin that nailed our Savior to the cross. And out of love for sinners like us, He was willing to endure the pain, to suffer the shame, that He might pay the penalty in full to save us from our sins. One of the uh, books that uh, I was tempted to go over tonight but decided not to is uh, entitled Blood Work by Anthony Carter. And I just want to read the headings of the chapter, the various chapters of this book, to help us to realize again what did He accomplish when He died? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, He died to purchase us by His blood. He died to propitiate God by His blood. That's a big theological word. It means to take away the wrath of God. To propitiate God means to remove His wrath so that for believers who come to Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation. There is no judgment. There is no wrath. Christ absorbed it all. He removed it all. He propitiated fully the Father by His blood. We've been justified by His blood. Justified. That is, our sins have been forgiven and we've been declared righteous in God's sight. Imputed with the very righteousness, the sinlessness of Jesus Christ Himself. We've been redeemed through His blood. We've been brought out of the slave market of sin. We were all slaves of sin. And Jesus bought us out of that slavery. We who are far off have been brought near by His blood. We have peace with God through His blood where before we had enmity and hostility. Our consciences are cleansed by His blood. We are sanctified through His blood. We are elect or chosen in His blood. We are ransomed by His blood. And we've been set free from sin by His blood. Did Jesus die? Yes, He definitely died. And why did He die? That He might save His people from their sins. So tonight we've been able to briefly reflect upon the death of Christ on the cross. And Lord willing, Sunday morning we'll be able to reflect a little bit on the resurrection of our Lord on the third day as He predicted. But what should be our response to this? Having in some way been reminded of the agony, the cruelty, the suffering, the pain that Jesus endured to save us from our sins. What should be our response? Well, we should stop. We should consider and reflect upon what we've just seen and been mindful of. To think that He did that for a sinner like me who deserves nothing but to bear the just wrath of God because I am a sinner and I have broken God's laws and I deserve His judgment. But Jesus died in my place, suffered the judgment that I deserve and did it on such a scale that He can offer salvation to any and all who repent and believe in Him. We should stop. We should consider all that the Lord had to endure 
to save us from our sins. And then we should worship. Stop, consider, and worship. And that's why I love that hymn by Philip Bliss that goes, Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement, can it be? Yes, hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished, was His cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah! What a Savior. And when He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah! What a Savior. Christ is worthy of our worship because He is the only one who could die and save us from our sins. Well, let us close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank You, Lord, for this Good Friday when we can come together and briefly reflect upon the agony and suffering of Jesus from the Garden of Gethsemane to the cross of Calvary, where He suffered from the top of His head to the bottom of His feet, enduring all of Your justice, all of Your wrath, and fully satisfied all that You required for the payment of our sins. So that any sinner who turns to You in simple repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone can find the free gift of everlasting life. O Father, receive our praise tonight for sending Your Son who loved us so much that as the Lamb of God, He was willing to sacrifice Himself for us. And receive our worship tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.